So Halloween, it's a little less than a week away. Tis the season for all things spooky and scary. Now, most of the time, I don't watch a lot of horror movies. If I want to be scared, I can just pick up the newspaper. Uh, the headlines of current events are usually quite scary enough. Thank you very much. Uh, but as is the case with many other people, Megan and I make an exception each October as Halloween approaches. We're usually in the mood to watch at least a few scary films or TV shows. We tend to avoid anything too gory, uh, preferring to tend instead toward tales of the supernatural, ghosts, hauntings, things that go bump in the night. So with Halloween approaching, it seems like an auspicious time to pay a visit to an often ignored corner of our own um, tradition of Unitarian Universalism, a spooky season in which UU history intersected strongly with the spiritualist movement. Uh, spiritualism, as some of you may know, is a religious movement that's based um, very uh, corely on the belief that we, the living, can communicate with the spirits of people who have died. So think seances and mediums and Ouija boards. At its height in the 19th century, in the decade before the Civil War, there were about 1.5 um, million Americans who practiced spiritualism. And although people from many different backgrounds became spiritualists, our universalist forebears were disproportionately drawn to this belief. And get this, no denomination lost more of their leaders to spiritualism than universalism. That's interesting, and it's a part of our UU history that isn't talked about that often. But once you start to think about it, it's actually not that surprising. The whole universalist half of our UU heritage, it started with people being deeply concerned with the question of what happens after you die. And our universalist forebears, they were called universalists precisely because they rejected the idea of hell and preached universal salvation. For all. They proclaimed that any God worthy of the name would not punish people eternally in an afterlife for what were at most finite transgressions in this life. That just didn't seem fair, among other things. It certainly didn't seem loving. Over time, as many of you have heard me say before, the universalist impulse became less about rejecting hell in a next world and much more about loving the hell out of this world. And that's the part of universalism most widely honored in our movement today, that growing universalist impulse to love the hell out of this world. It continued to grow and evolve, and it led many of our forebears to become abolitionists in the 19th century in support of universal freedom from, all, from slavery, that all people should be free. It led them to become suffragists in the 20th century in support of universal voting rights everyone should be enfranchised and be able to practice democracy. It led them to become uh, equal rights activists, including many of us in the early 21st century in support of a more universally inclusive definition of marriage for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens. That same spirit of universalism that started 250 years ago, we're in the 250th anniversary year of universalism from the late 
1700s. That same spirit of universalism continues to inspire many religious progressives today to organize for programs such as universal health care, universal access to college and vocational training, a universal basic income. This is all really connected. It's important to see that impulse of universal salvation, universal suffrage, um, universal basic income, universal health care. It's, it's connected. Universalism is fundamentally a belief that every person matters. In the words of our UU First Principle, each of us has inherent worth and dignity, and universalism calls us to shape our acts and our systems and societies in ever-widening circles of compassion in which everyone is included. So clearly there remains much work to be done to fulfill the promise of the universalist half of our heritage, but on this Sunday before Halloween, what about that original universalist interest in what happens after you die? How might we best respond to that question today? Well, I think it's important to note historically that even as universalism was evolving in the 19th century to have a more this-worldly focus on loving the hell out of this world, it was also continuing to have an otherworldly focus on the possibility of communication between the living and the dead. Let me give you an example, a UU ghost story, if you will. Come with me back to uh, more than two centuries ago to 1809. The 13-year-old Johannes Bonfils, who lived with his uncle, went to visit his mother. Uh, his walk back home took him through a forest where he unexpectedly encountered his father, who had died two years earlier. According to his reports, he both saw his father and heard him speak. When he told his family, however, they made fun of him and dismissed his experience as a hallucination. Nevertheless, the next week on his way home from visiting his mother, he again encountered his father, who had another message for him. This time, he did not tell his family, and that's Often what happens with such experiences, people keep them to themselves for fear of being made fun of or of not being believed. For a while, he thought that these two early encounters from beyond the grave, they might have been anomalies. But almost 15 years later, so this isn't something that happened to him just all the time, but 15 years later, not long after he was ordained as a minister in the congregational church, he had another experience of being visited uh, several times by another a relative who had died, and this time his wife was there and saw and heard this apparition as well. Although he didn't, again, share these experiences with many people, they did cause him to reject the traditional Christian teachings about hell, because he was like, well, these people that are visiting me are clearly not in hell and have a very different conception of uh, whatever comes next than I've been told, and that led him to convert to universalism, so he became a universalist minister. This story is one among many, many examples of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears um, having experiences of encountering spirits, visiting mediums, going to seances, and much more. If you're curious to dive into the details, the best starting point is a book titled The Other Side of Salvation, Spiritualism, and the 19th Century Religious Experiences, published by our own uh, Skinner House Press. But for now, I want us to zoom out a bit to consider how such ghost stories relate more broadly to our Unitarian Universalist movement, both then and now. And the point I would really underscore most strongly is the relationship of spiritualism to what is known as the liberal turn in religion that started in the late 1700s and strongly influenced both the Unitarian and Universalist sides of our heritage. 
Importantly, the liberal turn in religion is not a turn to the Democratic Party. It refers to the Latin root libere, which means free. So think of the word liberty, freedom. The liberal turn in religion refers to a shift in which it, the shift happened in where people recognized religious authority. And I'll share my screen with you in a moment to give you a visual representation of this transition. These few words on the slide I'm about to show you may not seem like that big a deal, but it would be difficult to overemphasize how important this paradigm shift was and continues to be in Unitarian Universalism and really um, much more broadly. So give me just one second to show you um, a slide. So the liberal turn in religion, the turn toward freedom, it's a shift from external authority to internal authority. It's a, a switch from, and think about how some of this has played out in your life or the life of people that you know. Where do they look for answers to religious questions? Do they look to a hierarchy, to a religious hierarchy of, uh, you know, they tell me what to believe? Do they look to tradition, what allegedly has always been believed, or a tradition about what allegedly happened a long time ago? Or notice what happens when you shift that authority to what makes sense to me, or what I know to be true because I've experienced it firsthand for myself. The consummate examples of this today are controversies over things like, should women be ordained? or should lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender folks be ordained? So you can think about religious questions around this. Like some people look to, and it's almost like people just talk past each other because they're not noticing that some people are arguing based on what they tell me to do or what allegedly is true from the past. And other people are like, that didn't make any sense. And I don't know, women seem like fine preachers to me. And you know, LGBT folks seem like great leaders to me. And I don't care what people do in their bedrooms or whatever. So I really want you to notice what happens. Where is the locus of authority for you? Uh, it, it really makes um, a difference uh, in, in so many ways. Uh, so the larger point is that the same theologically liberal emphasis on reason and firsthand experience that freed our Unitarian forebears in the 1500s during the Reformation from feeling like they had to believe in the Trinity or the divinity of Jesus because they told me to, or it's allegedly always been that way. The same theologically liberal emphasis on reason and firsthand experience that freed our universalist forebears from feeling like they had to believe in hell. They were like, that doesn't make sense. It's not what seems right in my experience. That also opens up the freedom to explore experiences of apparitions or of a medium claiming to channel the voice of a loved one or any number of things. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's actually nothing new and you would be right. There are plenty of stories in religious traditions going back thousands of years about angels, demons, spirits, exorcisms, and more. But notice that the liberal turn in religion means that all those spooky, weird, and strange experiences that used to be explained exclusively by religious authority figures and interpreted only through the lens of traditional authority, now individuals could interpret them for themselves. And maybe they referenced religion tradition, and maybe they didn't. When you let go of hierarchy and tradition, you get a lot of individual freedom. And don't get me wrong. Ultimately, I think the trade-off is more than worth it. But let's also be honest that sometimes liberty can genuinely set you free 
Other times, what at first feels like liberation can end up leaving you feeling cast adrift or vulnerable to the manipulations of charlatans, of frauds, of snake oil salesmen. So what are we to make of all this? For the skeptics in the audience, be assured that many of our universalist forebears who are part of the spiritualist movement were very much aware that there was no way to prove with certainty how much of their experiences were subjective or psychological. And many of them wrestled with that dilemma. And sometimes I think as Irene powerfully talked about earlier, sometimes it doesn't matter. These things need to be wrestled with either way wherever they are on the spectrum. At the same time, many of our forebears did also understand themselves to be approaching spiritualism from as much a scientific perspective as possible. They really were. They were like attending seances and stuff because they wanted to see, can I collect proof about whether the living speak with the dead? Some of them came away convinced. Other ones came away convinced there were charlatans and frauds, you know, and everywhere in between. But here's the rub. Science is best equipped to deal with phenomena that are easily replicable in laboratory conditions. And for things that are replicable in laboratory conditions, we should trust science. But spiritualist experiences are often uncanny and strange and weird, and many people stumble unexpectedly into them. They're often connected with trauma. That's really important. They're often connected to traumatic deaths or accidents and thus are difficult or impossible to repeat on demand. In terms of our six sources that make up the big tent of our UU living tradition, we could frame this situation as a tension that's really irresolvable between our first source, direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder that were so important, going back to like our transcendentalist forebears like Emerson and Thoreau and Margaret Fuller and others in the 19th century. What we know to be true because we've experienced it firsthand for ourselves, it was so liberating from religious orthodoxy. And our fifth source, humanist teachings that counsel us to heed the guidance of reason, the results of science, and warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. Both these sources are central to our tradition. For some people, our first source is enough, at least for them personally. The sufficient evidence is their firsthand experience, sufficient for them. They might not be able to prove their experience definitively to others in a double-blind scientific study, but their experience of something strange, uncanny, or weird may nevertheless remain one of the most important and influential experiences of their life. And for what it's worth, I think it's a shame when our attitude towards such experiences means that people never share with others one of the most important experiences of their life. So just something to consider. So along those lines, I'll, I'll let you in on a pretty open secret. One of the interesting things about being a minister is that people tend to share such stories with you from time to time, usually prompted by the weird circumstances in which ministers end up in various fairly traumatic and um, unusual parts of people's lives. Stories of experiences they may have only shared with a few close friends or family members. The specifics of those stories are not mine to share, but I can attest that a much larger percentage of people, and is often talked about publicly, have had maybe just one or maybe a handful of spooky, weird, or uncanny experiences. There are plenty of UU ghost stories and similar experiences both then and now. 
Along those lines, in a few moments, we're going to be invited to sing together hymn 1001 titled Breaths. The lyrics are based on a poem by the, um, uh, a poet from Senegal, a storyteller named uh, Barago Diop, who incidentally was also a skilled veterinary surgeon. Diop often wove themes from African folk tales into his work, and 40 years ago in 1980, the, Af the American singer and composer um, Issei Barnwell set Diop's poetry to music to form this song, Breaths, which was made famous. Some of you may have even seen uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock. They were in Frederick a few years ago, the African-American a cappella ensemble. Issei Barnwell is also a Unitarian Universalist uh, who founded Jubilee Singers, a choir at All Souls Church Unitarian in Washington, D.C. When I first heard this song, Breaths, many years ago, I found its opening lines to be a bit confusing. Listen more often to things than to beings. At that time, I thought, shouldn't we do the opposite? Shouldn't we listen more to alive beings than to dead things? But over the years, I've come to more fully understand our UU seventh principle of the interdependent web of all existence, right? The full spectrum of everything that is. I've come to see that uh, Issei Barnwell and the poet Barago Diop and others were actually onto something. Listen more often to things than to beings. We beings actually aren't doing a great job with this planet at the, at the moment. So maybe we want to listen to things a little bit. The poetry and lyrics of the song continue, inviting us to consider that if we pause to listen deeply with an open mind, an open heart, we might feel the presence of our ancestors all around us in the crackling of a fire, in the gurgling of a stream, in the rustling of the wind, or all manner of unexpected places. Listen more often to things than to beings. As to how much of that is psychology, how much of that is spirituality, that's a question ultimately each of us must discern the answer to for ourselves. Ultimately, as our UU seventh principle reminds us, we are part of an interdependent web, inextricably linked with ourselves and others. We are less isolated, uh, and the boundaries between our sense of self and the larger world are more porous than is sometimes granted. And as many world religions hold, the boundaries are often experienced by many people as being particularly porous in this autumnal season of the year when our part of the world is tilting from fall to winter. In that spirit, let us hold in our heart what we know to be true because we have experienced it firsthand for ourselves as we sing together. Breaths. <laughs> 